Um, as we begin our, our service this morning and our ushers go around to collect the offering, I would like to start with a couple pastoral notes uh, before I, I dive into my sermon. Um, many of you know uh, Miss Margaret Turner. Um, Margaret Turner was a, was a very long-time member of White Oak who went home to be with the Lord this past weekend. Uh, she passed away on Friday, and uh, many of you know Margaret. Uh, I knew her. Um, I also knew her, uh, her family, Peggy Richardson, Travis Richardson, Sarah Richardson. A lot of you know them as well. And, um, and so uh, just be praying for them this week and that family. Uh, we just want to honor Margaret for all that she meant to this church and the people of our church. Um, we were honored to have her a part of us for so long. And so uh, the, the funeral arrangements are still being made, uh, but it will be held this week at Pat H. Foley down on 34th Street, but they have not yet set a time uh, for that yet. So we will let you know uh, whenever we find that information, but uh, be praying for that family this week, and uh, please remember Margaret Turner uh, for all the good things that she meant to so many of us. Um, also, um, some of you may know this already, um, there's a picture up here I have of Jason and Holly Herring. Now, there should be a picture up here, maybe. Um, they've been recently coming to the church, and as many of you know, um, Holly was pregnant. And uh, Evan, you have a picture? Should be a picture in the PowerPoint. I want to introduce to you somebody. This is a Kyle Travis Herring. You can't really see the picture too well, um, but that's the baby in my wife's arms. Um, Holly and Jason uh, have recently been, have been attending the church, and she was pregnant on Friday. Uh, there was actually some complications with the, uh, the pregnancy, so there was a little bit of concern, but everything turned out well. Kyle Travis Herring is very healthy, and I texted Kyle, I mean, uh, uh, Jason last night to say, hey, is it, a, is it cool if I show a picture? And he goes, yeah, of course you can show this picture to the church, and also tell them that we are thankful to have White Oak as our church family uh, in this new endeavor in our life, and that's a quote. So... Uh, be praying for them. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to bring that baby around here soon so we can all um, hold it and touch it and love on it the way that we do with little babies in this church. So um, that's a, a really cool thing. But uh, the sermon this morning is entitled, Honesty is a Gift. And uh, I hope maybe as we read about oaths in the Sermon on the Mount and not using God's name in vain and letting your yes be yes and your no be no, I hope to maybe tweak the way that we view honesty. I think we oftentimes view honesty as a burden or a commandment we have to follow, um, when in reality I believe that honesty is something that is a gift for us to do. And also this time, are we having kids' church dismissed? We're dismissing kids' church too, so I'm sorry, I forgot to do that. So kids are dismissed at this time for a fun, age-relevant Bible study for them. You can go out this way. But uh, honesty is a gift, and uh, if I asked you what it comes to your mind when you hear the name Richard Nixon? What comes to your mind? Someone say, like, like, what comes to your mind? Watergate. Okay. Not Deflategate, Watergate, right? You think of maybe corruption. You think of deception. And many of you in this room, you actually were around whenever Richard Nixon resigned from office. People think he impe was impeached, which he kind of was, but in reality, Richard Nixon resigned before he could be impeached because he got himself in a little bit of trouble. And back in the early 1970s, I watched a documentary on this this week, the thought that a president of the U.S. could be removed from office outside of, honestly, assassination like JFK was almost unthinkable. 
Andrew Jackson was the last president before him that was impeached, but that was back in the early 1800s when America was crazy and didn't know what it was doing. And so the thought that a modern-day president could have to step down was almost unheard of. And the thing about Richard Nixon and Watergate is that essentially what happened was that Richard Nixon was an extremely good president. And they also say that Richard Nixon was one of the most intellectually astute presidents America ever had. And Richard Nixon had his first term as a president, which was like phenomenal. I mean, he opened up trade with China, which was like a really huge deal, was very good for the economy. He began a lot of the environmental protection acts that we still follow to this day. He also pretty much ended the war in Vietnam, which was like a huge deal back in his day. I mean, this guy was a famous president, had a great first four-year term, but then he got a little bit concerned because he was afraid he might not get reelected. And so as politics often goes, he decides that it might be a good idea to get some guys to break into the Democratic headquarters. He's a Republican, breaking into the Democrats, the the opposition, and basically stealing a lot of their strategies and figuring out what they're going to do against him. And so he does this, and then he actually gets elected, and to be honest, he didn't even need to break in anyway because he won by a landslide. But then once he became the president for a second term, allegations began forming against him. They said, hey, look, man, we found out you broke in to your opposition. You did something illegal. And where it really started to go downhill for Richard Nixon, because if he had just admitted to what he had done, they say he probably would not have been impeached or had to resign. Where things got really bad for Nixon was he was afraid of getting caught, and so he obstructed justice meaning there were tapes that would have uh, got him in trouble. There was voice recordings of him confessing to this, and he began to conveniently destroy certain tapes. And not only that, but then he lied to the American people. He never officially lied under oath, but he, on television, he looked at the American people in the eye and said, I am not a crook. Eventually, word got out that he had done it, And not only that he had committed this crime, but that he had tried to cover it up. And it's actually from Richard Nixon that we get the famous saying, the cover-up is often worse than the crime. And it's so sad, because a man who could have gone down as one of the greatest presidents of the 20th century, his whole presidency forever will be remembered by what you guys said, Watergate. Lies and deception. And the reality is, Where lies exist, either hurt is present or it is soon to follow. Where there is deception, where there are people being misled, there is hurt that is on the way. Have you ever been lied to? Have you ever been deceived? Like, remember that one time when somebody lied to you? Think about that. When you were, like, so misled and so deceived, do you remember the hurt that it caused you? I can remember several events in my life of people not letting their words be very clear towards me, and I was misled. Or, or what about, have you ever lied to somebody? You know that feeling when you lie, and then it's like, oh man, I'm, I've gotten caught? And when you look at the pain that lies cause a lack of integrity. When you realize the pain that it causes, you can begin to look at God's word and see that honesty is a gift. 
Why do we, it is a gift to live your life and not have the pain of either being lied to or lying to somebody and getting caught. And as we read the scripture this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Turn there with me at this time. As we read this this morning, I don't want you to read this as like, okay, here's another rule I've got to follow. Here's another command I've got to live my life by. Here's another thing I'm prone to that I can't do. I, I want us to read this as if Jesus is giving us this gift of honesty and clarity and transparency. And he's offering it to you and me that we can be close to him and avoid the pain of lies. Would you stand with me at this time as we read God's word together? Matthew 5, starting in verse 33. says this. This is Jesus speaking to the crowds, and he says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. May God bless this word. You may be seated. So before we dive into, I think, why Jesus says this, let's look at his words at face value. Verse 33, Jesus says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So in the Old Testament, there was this shocking notion that if you said you were going to do something, you should do it. And there was this obvious notion that if you said, I swear I'm going to do something, or even if you swore in God's name that you were going to do something, that you should do it, okay? In Exodus 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And the interesting thing about this is, I think when, in our world, when we think of using God's name in vain, we think of like maybe, maybe inserting God's name into a cuss word, or belittling the name of God and using it for trivial purposes when his name is supposed to invoke majesty and glory and honor for his name by, by trivializing it. But what, the way that they would have read this, because what was very common in the Old Testament was people would, uh, to, to really get their point across, they would swear on God's name or something, or something very heavenly that they would do something. And, and in the Old Testament, what they said is, if you do do this, if you do swear by God's name or something to that degree, which you shouldn't do, but if you do it, you better actually follow through with what you're saying because you invoke God's name for something and then you use it to, to not follow through with something. That would be considered using God's name in vain. And so that's how they would have been seeing this is if you invoke God's name in something, you should do it. And, but essentially what he's saying is using God's name is, is in a deceptive kind of way. So if you deceive people to make them think you're going to do something and you don't do it, that's using his name in vain. Or if you use it in a trivial matter, because God is not a trivial God. He is an important, all-powerful God. It's using God's name in, in vain if you use it in a trivial sense. So he says, you've heard it said that when you, um, when you swear in the Lord your God, you should perform what you do. But then in the, verse 34 he says, but I say to you, 
Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And and what he is doing here, because when I first read this, I was like, what is he? I don't get why this is all in here. And apparently what would happen is people in the Old Testament, in the time before Christ, they were very sneaky like we are. And so eventually they realized that if I swear on God's name and I don't follow through, I'm going to get in trouble. And so I still want to make people think I'm going to do something. I still want to try and be a little maybe deceptive. But so I can be deceptive but not get in trouble. I won't swear on, on God's name. I'll, I'll swear on um, heaven. Or I'll swear on Jerusalem or on my own head. Or I'll, I'll, I'll find some kind of a, a lesser thing that I can do. And if I do this and then I don't follow through, well, then I won't get in trouble. But Jesus says, but I say to you, all of these things essentially is what he's saying, are under God's command. He says, don't swear in your own head for you cannot make one hair white or black. He's saying, you don't own any power of your own existence. Only God owns that. Religious leaders would often use lofty swears to make people think that they would do something, knowing good and well they were not actually going to do it. And then Jesus says in verse 37, and this is the the summary. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. John MacArthur, a really well-known American theologian, says that the whole idea of this passage is not so much that you shouldn't make oaths, but that every word that we say, it should be as if it's under the utmost oath. It's not that we shouldn't follow through or be committed or, or follow through with the things that we promise. It's more so that every single word that I say should be valuable. Every single thing that I say should be honest and should be true. And if the answer is yes, then I should say yes. And if the answer is no, then I should say no. And we struggle with this in America, and especially in the South, because we're really nice. We have, like, Southern hospitality, and I, I wonder about this sometimes, because it's like when someone asks you to come over to their house for something, and, like, usually you do, but for whatever reason, you really don't want to this time. Like, it's, it's more polite to, like, make up an excuse, and to not say, I don't really want to come over. It's just like, oh, I've got a prior engagement. You know how we do that. Or when you're growing up, and your friend wants you to come over, and you don't really want to come over, and so you use your parents as an excuse, oh, my mom said I can't come. When in reality, you just don't want to go. You see, honesty is what you say. And integrity is who you are. Honesty is the the words that come out of your mouth. And integrity is that the things that you say and the way that you portray yourself is really the way that you are. And where we often get confused is we think that integrity means always being perfect, but that's not the case. Integrity does not mean that you're always perfect. It just means that you're always honest. You can have failures. You can say no, but you have to be transparent about those things. Because as we had established earlier, wherever lies exist, hurt is soon to follow. In Jesus' day, a lot of people were disenfranchised with the Jewish leaders because they had been deceived. They had had their money taken. They had been spiritually abused. 
Or somebody would show up at their house, a thief or something, and he would say, I have to borrow um, some of your livestock for something, and I swear that I'll bring it back. And then they would just leave. And they'd never come back. And good people would get taken advantage of because they would believe people when they would invoke high views of oaths. And Jesus says in the kingdom of God, this is not so. Church, we are an honest people. We are people who we, we say the truth and we trust God's providence because so often we can let people manipulate us. You ever have people that ask you a question, but they're not really asking you a question. They're really telling you what you should do. And we're afraid of people being dissatisfied with us. We're, we're afraid of people not liking what we say. And so we just kind of do whatever we think that they would want us to do. That's called manipulation. And sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes you don't want to do something. Sometimes it's not the right thing for you. Sometimes it's not the right time or something. And sometimes we have to be able just to say, I love you, but the answer is no, and then trust God with the outcome. But we don't trust God with the outcome, so we try to manipulate it to make sure that everyone likes us. And yet Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. But here's the interesting thing. I was preparing this this week, and usually when I preach a sermon, it's like I'm trying to kind of dig up the lies of the world and fill it with the truth of God. And yet this week, I was thinking through it, and I'm like, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And like, I think everybody agrees with that. Like, I don't think, even in our culture, no matter what you believe, you can be as secular as they come. And, and you probably believe that honesty is a good thing. And so I think we have this value in our world today. It's, it's weird to get up here and say that. I think in a lot of ways our, our world, though not perfect, it, it really does understand this value. But then we have to ask, well, but what's the, what's the reason? Why does God want us to be honest? Why do we have to be clear? Why do we have to be transparent? Why can I, why do I have to let my yes be yes and my no be no? Why should I be honest in every single word that I say and not only in the Old Testament as they said when I make oaths? Why, why do I have to do this? And I think that when you read this in the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think what you see is that the reason why this is so important is because you can't be close if you won't be honest with God and with people. You cannot be close in relationship, in community, if you will not be honest. The whole Sermon on the Mount is teaching about the kingdom of God and how as we can begin to, to live like the kingdom, we can now draw closer and closer to Jesus. Because what every human heart wants at the core is a relationship with the God of the universe. And that if we can live this way, that somehow we can become closer to God. We can, we can do away with sin in our lives, and we can step into who he is, and the honesty, and the truth, and we can know him, and we can quit putting on a show for the rest of the world and just be honest about who we are, and our struggles, and our failures, and yet find love even though we're honest about our failures. And where there is lies, there can never be closeness. You see, honesty is not a burden. Honesty is a gift. When I was a freshman in high school, I, uh, 
I went to this like faraway school. I'd grown up in this community my whole life. And for whatever reason, I thought there was like this better school um, that was kind of far away from where I lived. And I wanted to go there instead of the school I was zoned to. And I knew I wasn't going to know anybody there. So I dragged my best friend along with me to go to this school so that I wouldn't be totally alone. So we're going to go to this school together, right? And then a month before I go to this brand new school of my ninth grade year, uh, I start getting word that my best friend is about to bail on me because a girl that he liked his whole life finally likes him back. And now she's going to the other local school. And so now I call him up on the phone. I'm like, hey, man, so I'm getting word that you're, like, bailing on me. He's like, yeah, man, sorry. <laughs> this girl likes me. I got to go for this. Uh, so ninth grade. And, um, and so he basically leaves, and I literally go off to this school where I know, like, nobody. And maybe you've been there in life. See, I've always lived in the same kind of area, and so I've never had the experience. But some of you have, like, moved across the country or to a different city or a different place, and you know what it's like to land somewhere and not to know anybody. Or maybe, you know, you started going to a church and you don't know anybody there, or you get a new family, and, and like you get married and then you meet all these new people and you don't know them and they don't know you. And so I got that experience my freshman year. And I remember going to this high school of like 3,000 people and just feeling completely alone. You ever been there? You're with a bunch of people and yet you feel completely alone. Nobody knows you and you don't know them. And everywhere you go, it's just like small talk after small talk after small talk. And there's no substance. There's nothing that touches your heart. There's nothing that ministers to you in that. And at the end of that year, by God's grace, I was able to make friends just in time to leave and come back to my home school. But what I learned that year was that it is such a gift to have people in your life that you can be honest with and people that know you and people that know everything about you, even your failures, and, and they love you nonetheless. And what Jesus is offering us in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, he's offering you the gift of honesty. Because you can't be close if you won't be honest. Even in church community, it's, it's the same way. Part of getting close to people is opening up your life to them and showing them who you really are and asking them to love you regardless. Part of drawing close to God is being honest with him, is being transparent with him. And this is why confession is so important, confessing your sins to God and to others, because you're being honest with God. That's a sign that you trust him, that you can open up to him and you can pray to him and that you believe he will love you nonetheless. In Psalm 24, uh, King David says this. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? It is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I think at the core, what we really need to be asking ourselves 
is why is my yes not always yes and my no not always no? Is it because I'm kind of maybe flaky and I have a hard time following through just in general? Is it like maybe a responsibility issue? Or, or is it a deceitfulness in my heart? Because what Jesus says is that anything more than yes or no ultimately comes from evil. That somehow if I go beyond just what my, my natural word is, that, that maybe somehow I'm trying to gain an advantage on somebody by not being honest or by not being transparent. And White Oak, I want to offer you a life of honesty. The reason why I think often why we can't overcome sin, I think it's because it's private. I've heard it said that a private sin will become a habit, but by God's grace, a public sin will be defeated. Honesty is a gift to help us overcome. And I want to invite you to be honest with the Lord. I want to invite you to find people in your life, but it's not everybody. When I say be honest, I don't mean like post on Facebook, you know, every single thing about your life or every, I just did this sin. Guess what I just did? You know, like I'm not saying that, but I'm saying like finding like a small group of people that you can walk with and you can be honest with. Because what we tend to do is we put up this front of who we are in real life and that's just not who we really are. Honesty is a gift from the Lord. Letting your yes be yes and your no be no, it is a gift from God himself. I'll close with this story. In Genesis chapter 20, Abraham and his wife Sarah are traveling to this foreign land. And they, they come up upon... Um, this foreign land and this foreign king. And Abraham knows something um, <laughs> that his wife is a very attractive lady. And Abraham is afraid that when he shows up at this land, because they're going to be so attracted to his wife, that they're going to kill him if they know that he's her husband. And so he devises this plan with his wife, Sarah. He says, okay, okay, baby, this is what we're going to do. Whenever we show up here, I'm going to pretend to be your brother, which technically back in that day, Abraham was um, her half-brother, but really was her husband. It was kind of different back then, limited resources, and so it's just a different time. And um, so he says, okay, Sarah, so you're going you're gonna to pretend to be my sister even though we're really married. And so they show up, and of course, the king and all the people, they look at Sarah, and they're like, yeah, she's really beautiful. And the king asks for Sarah to come to see him. And uh, Abraham says, no, look, she's my sister. She's, she's not my wife or anything. And so um, the king begins talking to his wife. And then that night, uh, before he officially makes her his wife, he, he goes to sleep. And God appears to this king in a dream. And, the, and God says, you can't touch this lady. She's married. If you touch her, I'm going to bring my wrath down on you. And the king's like... God, I, I mean, he's like conversing with me. He's like, God, I, I didn't know. Like, I was told that, that that man was her brother. Like, would you bring your wrath on me when I, I was honestly, I just didn't know? And God says, well, I know. That's why I'm coming to you to tell you this now so that you don't make a mistake. 
Okay, that's why I'm showing up. And so the king wakes up and he goes to Abraham and he's like, why didn't you tell me that this, this, this beautiful woman was your wife? Why, why didn't you tell me? And Abraham goes, well, because I, I thought that if I told you that, that you would, you would kill me because you would want to make her your wife. And so I was just afraid that you would kill me. And the king says, no, I'm not going to kill you. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. And so not only does he not kill Abraham to take this man's wife, partially because he's afraid of God's wrath, he literally says, okay, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you livestock and everything you need. And I'm going to set you up perfectly for the remainder of your journey. And the early church interpreted that story as saying this, that in our lives, we should always be honest and trust God's providence with the outcome. I know there's certain nuances, and I know someone's going to say, what about smuggling Bibles into a foreign country? I get it. I think there, obviously, there's, there's room in this, of course. But the majority of your life decisions come down to being honest with God and with people, with letting your yes be yes, letting your no be no, by living without borders in the sense that you are an honest person. The early church interpreted this story as we should trust God and be honest. But another way that I I look at this story and what I see is the gospel. I see the gospel in the sense that even after Abraham lied and made a mistake, Who was it that stepped in and saved Abraham? It was God. Who who stepped in when Abraham had lied and made a mistake? I mean, if you lied to a king back in the day, like that was cause enough for death, right? And yet after we have lied so many times in our lives, and even as we go forward in this, and I know we're called to let our yes be yes, we know we're going to fall and make mistakes, and yet it is always God who is the one who steps in and who saves us. And I say that because as we, as we attempt to live without borders, what we need to know is that we are a fallen people, that we make mistakes. And even though we try to do these things, even when we fall short, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is blood for your sins. There is, there is atonement for everything you've ever done and you will do. And, and I say this because you could hear this sermon and think, I just got to try harder. I got to do more. I got to be more honest. And yes, we need to do those things, but at the end of the day, every sermon closes with the idea that Jesus saves us in his power and in his strength. And as we seek to live this out and to walk by the Spirit, even if we fail like Abraham, Jesus saves us. If you're not a Christian this morning, or you're not sure if you're a Christian. The simple story is this, is that the world has fallen and broken. And God created it. And the same God who created it, and then we broke it, is the same God who is redeeming it. And while we are imperfect people, and we can't live in his kingdom because it's perfect, Jesus came down to die on the cross for our sins. And the Bible says that if we would place our faith in him, that he would lead us into eternal life. That everything we do can be done by the gospel and by grace. And so as we take communion, as we close this service, we're going to come to the front. Um, uh, The deacons are going to prepare it as I pray. Um, We're going to take it ourselves. And the way that we do that, we come and pick it up at the front. is so that whenever you're ready, uh, you can take communion. 
And we ask that this is something that only believers would do. This is kind of our bonding, our closeness to God. This is the way that Christ told us to remember his atonement on the cross for our sins. But we're going to have you come to the front and take it. And then you can go back to your seat. You can take it up here. Um, But whenever you feel ready uh, during the music, we want you to take it at your own pace. Uh, Maybe you want to pray at the altar before. Maybe you want to pray at the altar the entire time. Maybe you want to walk to the side and pray. Uh, But whatever you want to do, we want to create that freedom and that space to do that. So let's pray um, before we close. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to be honest. And Lord, I I pray that if if there's somebody in this room right now, maybe who's tempted to, to be dishonest, Lord, about anything, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that honesty is a gift that you've given us to live in your kingdom. Lord, I also pray that as we come to the Lord's Supper, I pray, God, if we have maybe in certain ways not been honest about our sin, that we would confess it at this time, that we would repent and come back from our wrongdoing, and that we would come close to you again, and that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper would remind us that because of what you've done, even in the midst of our sin, we can now draw close to you. I pray, Lord, that we would take this time with serious and with reverence, God. And Lord, that we would find so much comfort as we just honestly come to the front as weary sinners to receive your grace, to remember your atonement. God, make us open with our lives that we can be close to you and close to others. And I pray, Lord, that as we open up about who we are and our struggles, God, that you would just provide unconditional love for us in the midst of that. We love you. We thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless the Lord's Supper and that would nourish our souls this morning. We ask all these things in the perfect name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.